This is John Benham. You are listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello and welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya Friedman. Uh, my co-host, Ben Rock, is uh, still out sick, so he is not uh, back this week. On the show today, we actually have uh, a couple of people. We've got uh, two guests and a guest co-host. On the show, uh, for interviews, we have part of the creative team behind the new movie Assassins, which is available on streaming pay-per-view. Uh, Assassins is a fantastic documentary directed by Ryan White and shot uh, cinematography by John Benham. Uh, both of them are going to be on the show, and uh, we're going to start off with Ryan White in just a minute. But I also want to introduce uh, someone who uh, has been on the show, and if you were listening to us just uh, just recently for our latest War Stories episode, his war story is in there as well. It's one of the highlights of the show. Please welcome Bill Totolo. Thank you for having me, Ilya. And uh, Ben, I hope you're feeling better. I'm, I'm, I hate to be filling in for your shoes, and I'm a little nervous doing it, uh, but they're big shoes to fill, my friend. Well, uh, I will tell you that Ben did say that he thought you'd be a great choice to come in and uh, guest host. And you're not the only one. Several people actually sent uh, well wishes to Ben. And I know that he is improving. He is getting better. So I think he's going to make it. Not that I don't want to worry anyone. Never at some point do we think he was not going to make it. He has been doing just <laughs> fine, uh, but he is recovering well. And I know he has a, a sense of taste and smell now. So that's all. That's all positive. Oh, good. Excellent. Glad to hear that. I'm sorry he's going through that, and I hope he bounces back as fast as possible. Yeah, let me tell you, when when thinking about, like, between Ben and I, who's a hypochondriac and who is <laughs> uh, is is more likely to, like, uh, come down with something, I really thought it would be me out and, you know, Ben fill, filling in, but it turns out it's the it's the other way around. Ben is, uh, you know, but he's on the mend, and uh, I'm sure that he will be back probably next week or maybe the week after. So there, there may not be too many more guest hosts, Bill, so you're, you're in, a, in a real seat of honor right now. And you know this, because I know you listen to the show, uh, we like to start off with something we call close focus. And uh, close focus is sort of topical, it's sort of uh, what's going on. What do you think uh, we should talk about today for, for close focus? Well, you know, I got a couple of thoughts, because I've got a lot of free time on my hands these days. I just discovered a podcast called The Ghibliotech, which discusses all the films of Studio Ghibli, hmm. which is really good inspiration, because we're all looking for films to binge. And I have not seen all the films of Studio Ghibli. So it's given me a good excuse to dive into that. And like everybody else, I'm just streaming. I have all these streaming services. So I just uh, discovered that HBO Max has all the Studio Ghibli's films online. So I just enjoyed Princess Mononoke and Whispers of the Heart. Ooh. So that's my first thought. Uh, I, I think, and I think that's great. I also have HBO Max, and uh, I've not taken full advantage of the Studio Ghibli stuff. Uh, I, I owned uh, some DVDs before they were they were out there, and I saw many of them. But there's still, turns out, way more that I haven't seen. So uh, I'm, I'm right. I think we all think of uh, my neighbor Totoro and uh, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving and, Castle. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So let me tell you, um, I know Princess Mononoke is a popular one, but I was not prepared for the epic man versus nature 
and uh, decapitation scenes that go on in the first five minutes of that movie. <laughs> it's not just decapitations. There's all kinds of uh, limb severings and uh, very sort of like visceral, I'm going to say disgusting sort of like supernatural sort of uh, entropy being uh, visualized in full living animation color. Uh, it, it's I know it's jarring when you think of like, oh, it's going to be time for something animated. And, you know, Studio Ghibli's never exactly been uh, that that happy, happy, fun, fun sort of thing although they they do certainly have lighter fare like Kiki's Delivery Service which is also wonderful for children I would say probably not all of Studio Ghibli wonderful for children but Kiki's Delivery Service absolutely appropriate so uh so yeah yeah what's your what's your your feeling of Princess Monoki uh, when when you get to the end well first of all drawing on what you just said it is the braveheart of animated films uh, agreed for sure for agreed yeah but they are also known for doing Graveyard of the Fireflies, which is an absolute heartbreaking film. I've never seen if you it. You don't know anything about yeah. it, no spoilers, but it is a uh, it's a three hanky film oh, for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right, three hanky. Okay, right, so so uh not to, to So to, so the ending, um yeah. you kind of buy into that fantastical element and at that point you realize this is an eco disaster film, Man vs. Nature. Uh, so I like where it ended, and I think what they were going for, and I think it's even in Miyazaki's notes, that he wasn't going for like a definitive protagonist in the film. So there's not a winner and a loser. It's a compromise, and how do we live with nature and you know ever-expanding virus that the human race is? How do we not destroy everything as we are trying to live our lives? And I think it's like a evergreen. It, it's still pertinent to this day. Uh, I, I agree. I've seen it a couple of times. I would definitely see it again. My daughter got a Princess Moonoki inspired shirt, which I know that she loves with the uh, the Wolf Rider. So it's uh, it's a it's got all kinds of like classic iconography now. And I think you're right. It's evergreen. It will uh, it will stand the test of time. We will come back to it. I'm always amazed at how many people I've met who have never seen a Studio Ghibli film. So that's not a bad one to start with if you want something that's not so, uh, you know, friendly and cheery. So Ben, uh, Ben, excuse me. So Bill, <laughs> nice. I know I, I did it. I knew it was bound to happen. But so, so Bill, what's, what was your other thought here for close focus? What was your other thing that you were, you know? So the other yeah. thing we were bantering about, and this was like less of a fun issue, but I, I think it's very relevant in our field, is I had the very displeasurable occasion to actually have have to not recommend somebody for a job. Ooh, the opposite of recommend. You had to not recommend someone. Yes, and uh, it was somebody from a long time ago, and a director had Googled this person after an interview because, as he told me later, his spidey senses were tingling. So he had Googled this gentleman and found out that I had shot one of his very first films, and he wanted to know what I thought. And I said, listen, a lot can change in 20 years, but I have kept in touch with this person throughout the years, and on a very high-end production, this was a very somewhat prestigious director whose work, you may not know the director by name, but you have seen his work during mm-hmm. Super Bowl ads. Um, I was like, yeah, this, this person could prove to be a distraction to your production. And I think more and more, every minute, every minute on a production counts. And um, if you're not moving the production forward, you could actually be holding it back. And I just had to be honest because I had no pleasure in doing that. None. But also this person who came to me for advice would remember the referral I gave him in the future and it could reflect poorly on me as well. And so I just felt really bummed out. It took me a whole day to even think about that reply. But if he's reaching out, it's for a reason. He already, you know, I could tell he 
probably sensed it, so all I did was confirm it. And I let him draw his own conclusion. I, I think you got to be honest when someone comes to you and says, hey, um, uh, I've got something going on and uh, I, I want a, a personal recommendation. And I, I know for for this story, for this experience you just shared with us, it was a long time ago, but clearly the experience with that person stuck with you. I, I know I've got a number of times this has happened. Uh, most recently, you know, uh, when I was a freelancer, I would say that personal recommendations came up all the time. But even now, uh, you know, running hot red cameras, uh, I get contacted by manufacturers on the, the regular and they ask me, hey, uh, there's this influencer or this blogger, if you want to go back a, a few years, uh, there's this person that we're thinking about offering a lot of money to to be a spokesperson or giving a bunch of money to so they can produce something for us what do you think of this person i know you've had dealings with them and, and i've had to do the same thing i've had to say honestly if you're going about to give this person you know tens of thousands of dollars uh you might want to you might want to think again or you might want to look at a couple of other people because ultimately if you say yeah that person's great and then they have a bad experience with that person that reflects really poorly on you. And I don't think it's a good idea to just say everyone's a champion, everyone's great, refer everybody for everything because yeah, you're gonna burn your own bridges. You're gonna make sure you're gonna make sure that those people uh, those people aren't gonna want to work with you when they have a bad experience. You know, it's actually I think it's the same thing with gear, actually. Uh, I, I meet people who who work for, for their camera shops all the time, and I've heard them recommend gear that I just know is absolutely terrible. And uh, should not probably be used by anyone or only very specific situations. And I feel like you always remember the person who, who who screwed you. You remember that person who told you something that wasn't true. So there's like a really popular tripod out there that I cannot ever like publicly say, you know, don't buy this tripod because I sell that tripod. But at the same time, whenever someone comes into my store and they say, oh, I'm interested in this tripod, I have to say, you know what? Here's why you probably want to look at something else. And I, you have to you have to take that Hippocratic oath to do no harm, because uh, just by saying something is great and moving on, as I feel like a lot of people do on the Internet, you you end up, I think, tarnishing your own star. So so uh, I, I try never ever to speak ill of people, but uh, certainly with products and things, or if it is specifically for a job or referral, I have to speak honestly. And if that's unflattering, I think that it's like that for everyone out there. At least it should be. I, I, I don't know. Bill, what do you think? I love the way you put that, the Hippocratic Oath. I think that sums it up just pure, perfectly. I want to look out for you. I want to look out for my team. Um, and just to qualify that statement, I know that we live in the day and age of the cancel culture. So this was not like somebody whose politics I didn't agree with. This was a person who had his PAs waxing his back in his personal residence. Whoa. I walked in on that for a meeting and I, I was just appalled. And I was just like, and, and that, that is just one small sample of the raging uh, inappropriate. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that PA did not expect that to be happening when that. No, and it was a poor young person who didn't know any better. And I was just like, this this is inappropriate. And, and that's just... One small example that encapsulates the whole, if you will. Sure. So, I, I, yeah, I don't want you to think like, oh, I just didn't like this person or he posted something on Facebook. It's not that at all. Not, not in the least bit. And in fact, I would never factor that in. It was just more like this, this is a person who is only in this business to feed their ego, not to do good work, not because they have a story to tell, not because they have a skill to share. Um, it's just to feed their ego. And so, 
Yeah, well, I think that's actually probably a really good place for us to leave it. We should get to the interview, at least uh, the first part of our featured interview with the creative team or significant portion of the creative team behind the new movie Assassins. Here is the interview with Ryan White. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Acclaimed director Ryan White, thank you so much for being on Cinepod, the Cinematography Podcast today. Thank you for having me. Uh, your movie, Assassins, touches on a number of things. Corruption, geopolitical relations between nations, of course, uh, threats to migrant workers, uh, particularly women. But ultimately, it's the story about the assassination of Kim Jong-un, uh, Kim Jong-un's half-brother. Uh, what attracted you to this story? Uh, nothing at the beginning. I remember the headline when this assassination happened in February of 2017. It was a huge news story, especially because there had been two female assassins. And that grabbed a a lot of media attention. But if you look back at that historically, that was Trump's first full month in office. So I think, you know, one of the biggest political assassinations of our lifetime, which would have been a conversation topic for months during the Obama administration, very quickly dissipated into the ether. And um, I didn't follow this story at all. And a few months after the assassination, a journalist approached me. His name is Doug Clark. And he was writing an article about this story. He had been investigating it for GQ magazine. And he said, well, you jump on the phone with me. I think there's a lot more to this assassination than people know about. And I think it would make a great documentary. And I I jumped on the phone with Doug, and that was the first time I ever heard that these women were admitting that they had assassinated Kim Jong-nam, but were claiming that they thought they were on a reality show when they did it. And it was unbelievable, literally unbelievable to me. I'm a skeptic by nature. I think that most documentary filmmakers are. But I felt like, what a strange hook for a documentary, whether these women were telling the truth or lying. I mean, it's true crime on the biggest geopolitical stage, right? An assassination of, of, of a family member of the Kim regime. And then female assassins claiming that they thought they were playing pranks when they pulled off the assassination. So I thought it warranted at least a visit to Malaysia where this murder trial was about to go down. And it was that trip to Malaysia that totally sold me on the idea that I that I was going to be returning to Malaysia a lot over the next two years to make a film about this. The assassins, uh, the, the women who commit the, the murder, giving, giving nothing away here, believe they're on some sort of prank television show, uh, not dissimilar from maybe uh, an American equivalent like uh, Jackass or, or Punked. And big portions of the story that gets broken down for you, uh, for the audience and uh, in the movie, include the text conversations and security cameras. Um, it all feels so obvious when when you're reading these text conversations, like what's really going on when you have when you have the perspective and you can also see how they're so easily being duped. I, I want to know what your reaction was the first time you read those text message transcripts. What was what did you feel and think when you were when you were reading what the fake producers are saying to these women? Right. Well, I think it's important for me to say it's not like I had access to those text messages at the beginning of the film. Um, I came upon them halfway into making the film, probably once these two uh, women's defense teams really trusted me. They gave us all of the evidence in the case, Um, you know, and it's not just text messages. it It was also the social media profiles of both of these women and their WhatsApp messages and their flight paths. So 
uh, it gave us this huge cachet of a, a digital database tracing these women's lives in the lead up to this assassination. And yes, they were claiming that they thought they had been hired by a Japanese YouTube company. And those Japanese men ended up being North Korean spies. And once we got our hands on all of that, uh, it started to corroborate the women's story. And so before all of that, I was I was dubious and I didn't really believe them. I assumed that they were connected to the North Korean regime in some way um, and they were willing to give their lives for that regime. And then slowly, as we got our hands on all that stuff, our eyes started to be open to the fact like, wow, okay, this corroborates what she said here. This corroborates what she said happened at this mall. And you start to wonder whether it is conceivable that they were being tricked. And then you mentioned uh, security camera footage. It was after we had all the text messages that we got our hands on the CCTV footage from the day of the assassination. So for people that haven't seen it, the assassination happened in the departure hall of the Kuala Lumpur International Airport. So a massive international airport with security cameras everywhere. So I can't say how we finally got our hands on the footage, but we did through some sources. And it took asking almost everyone who was involved in this. And suddenly we were given thousands of hours of footage from cameras all over the Kuala Lumpur airport and my editing team spent months piecing together that footage because it's like a it's like a puzzle it's like that highlights magazine from growing up where you're looking for <laughs> the same you're looking for objects and things because you're looking for the same six men and the same two women in an unfiltered airport that has thousands of people walking through it. And once we were able to piece together that puzzle, it totally corroborated the women's version of events and it totally proved who these men were, these North Korean men who played, you know, a key role uh, in, the, in how the assassination went down, which, which we trace in the film. So during the course of the movie, the the women are incarcerated and they stand trial and you've got access to these transcripts and to the CCTV footage. Does the judge, does the prosecution have access to the same the same material or is it completely is it completely like blinders on uh, throughout the entire process? I mean, you, you get the feeling from watching the movie that they don't want to introduce any of this. Uh, they won't allow them to introduce any of this. But do you have any knowledge if uh, prosecution or anyone from the, the government actually watched any of the evidence that your team has, had put together and had been had access to? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know for certain, but presumably, I mean, they have the same type of discovery laws there that they have here. In fact, there's are, there's definitely favored the police and government more so than in the U.S. There's, there's a lot less of the rights of the accused. So from the moment the women were arrested, their cell phones were taken um, and were property of the government. And the government was the first was the first party to access the CCTV footage. So, um, you know, I can't say. For certainty, like, yeah, of course they had all of this stuff and they could have brought this up in the trial, but it would be insane to think that they didn't have that option. So the trial was a very one-sided affair uh, to convict these women. And for whatever reason, the Malaysian government seemed out to convict and therefore execute them because uh, it's a mandatory death penalty in Malaysia. The judge would not have had access to that. So, you know, the judge, I I truly believe, was um, an impartial judge in some ways who was there to hear the arguments. It's just that the judge was hearing a complete one-sided argument from the prosecution, from the Malaysian government. And so he was making his conclusions based on a very limited view of what happened in that airport that day. The prosecution was never willing to ever publicly acknowledge that North Korea 
had even played a role in this assassination. They were very narrow focused on the idea that these women admitted that they touched this man's face. These women had a chemical weapon on their hands which killed him, which killed him. Therefore, these women are guilty and need to be killed. Your, your movie details this sort of broad corruption, and I don't really know how else to call it except for corruption, at the highest levels of government and a willingness, it seems, of the police and other, and other folks to go along with it. Can you tell me a little bit about your trials and tribulations in finding a distributor for this movie, about getting, getting this out there? I find that movies that detail corruptions of powerful people generally have a hard time seeing the light of day. Can you tell me about your process of getting this out into the world? That's interesting because I think that's kind of a new thing in the last few years where those types of films have more difficulty. I mean, look at Citizen Four, one of the best documentaries of the last decade, which won the Oscar and had, you know, HBO. And that film had no trouble and was about corruption at the highest echelons of government. I think it's a new sort of thing in our world where, you know, there's weird shifts happening where documentaries are becoming exponentially more popular when it comes to audiences. And the streamers really created that pathway for us in a lot of ways for things to go viral in that type of way, for binge watching, for the documentary series format to become a thing, for documentaries to go global with companies like Netflix uh, so they can go all around the world at the same time. But what we've also seen is those companies, because they're becoming so global, that they're less willing now, I think just in the last few years, uh, to do some of the harder hitting stories about foreign governments. Mine is a little different than I think than some other films that have had difficulty getting distribution in that the difficulty of mine was, I think can be all paths for my films difficulty lead back to the Sony hack. Mm. Mine is less about, I don't think companies or other foreign governments are afraid of criticizing the Kim regime. I mean, that, that that's just sort of common vernacular worldwide, you know, that there's a problem with this country and there's a problem with the regime leading it. I think the fear is around the retribution that that government has showed. And for the Sony hack specifically, that, that, went, that was directly directly targeted at Hollywood. You know, so no no physical violence happened through the Sony hack. It was sheer embarrassment to people in Hollywood and probably a huge ding to the bottom line in a lot of ways. And so that was the big challenge for our film, I think, is nobody, understandably, like, I don't judge these companies for this. Um, you know, they have to watch their bottom line and their cybersecurity. And, you know, are you willing to risk the cybersecurity of a massive global company for a documentary film, uh, one documentary film. So I don't, I don't judge them for that. You know, we, we felt that fear the entire time we were making the film. We were constantly questioning whether this was worth it for us as, you know, a small little company. So I think we're lucky, though, in the sense that, you know, we're, our, our film is not with one of the big streamers. It's with Greenwich Entertainment. But it's allowed our film to really spread by word of mouth in that type of way where it doesn't, I, I think it doesn't have to come out of the gate so strong as films on, on the streamers do um, and hopefully can build that audience over time. And I will also say our film had no difficulty getting distribution outside of the U.S. We, we premiered at Sundance in um, 2020 and our film got snatched up by great distributors all over the world right away. So interestingly, it was only the U.S. and Hollywood that had a lot of, uh, I wouldn't call them, I, I don't know if they were fears, but they weren't interested in taking on assassins, you know, which I think is interesting that the rest of the world was willing to take it right away and head on. 
your your movie does expose the fact that North Korean spies were able to operate pretty freely inside of Malaysia. And I mean, there there's other stories of corruption where you have agents of foreign governments uh, working freely inside of another country and uh, carrying out abductions and, and uh, assassinations and all kinds of things. After going through this process with this movie, do you feel like North Korea has the uh, capabilities and wherewithal to do this inside the U.S.? I mean, do you feel like they could actually come here and do the same sort of thing, do people and and trick them into uh, carrying out their their will? Oh, boy. I mean, it's a good question. It's a very complicated question because so much of my film became about foreign diplomacy and international relations and um, geopolitics at the highest scales. And a lot of what our film sort of starts to narrow in on is is the relationship between these countries, namely North Korea and Malaysia, where this assassination happened, that are two countries that... Vietnam. I'm sorry, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Vietnam is a, is, a, is a great other example because Vietnam uh, also, Malaysia and Vietnam both have good working relationships with North Korea. Um, you know, North Korea has an embassy in Malaysia. There's a lot of North Koreans living in living in Malaysia. Likewise, in Vietnam, you know, that's where one of Trump's summits was, was in Vietnam. They hosted that. So two of the countries that were at the center of my film had a good, or, or not maybe not a good, but they had a working relationship with North Korea, unlike a lot of the rest of the world. So I think, you know, the U.S. is so much more isolated and impenetrable um, to North Korean influence than a country like Malaysia, you know, and China's somewhere in the middle and China, the Chinese government plays a role in my film as well because they were the ones harboring Kim Jong-nam um, after he was living in exile. So the big question at the center of my film was why didn't, you know, Kim Jong-nam lived in China for a long time. Well, he lived in Macau, which is a territory of China. Why didn't they assassinate him there? Why did they do it in an airport in Malaysia? And the presumption is because North Korea relies on China more than anyone. They rely on China's support. If China turns against North Korea, they're screwed. And so to do that on China soil would have been very risky uh, of the Kim regime. So to do it in Malaysia was a little bit less of an affront to, or a little bit less of a, of a violation of a country that, they're, that they rely on. So, you know, it's interesting. I had, a con- I had a Q&A last night with a gentleman who's a defector from North Korea who lives in the U.S. now. He's working with a nonprofit called Link Liberty in North Korea. That's this huge nonprofit based in the U.S., but it's a global nonprofit that's all about the liberation of the North Korean people, you know, and they're, they're doing that work every day, you know, and I'm sure they come into dangerous situations and risky situations, but those people aren't being assassinated, you know, so I think to Sectors that have been relocated to parts of the world that don't have those working relationships with North Korea are in a much safer space than someone like Kim Jong-nam, who was living and working in those countries that did have a relationship with North Korea. Your movie is a very tight 104 minutes. Whenever you're you're making a documentary and you're working with undoubtedly huge amounts of original material that you've created as well as uh, existing footage and documents and such that you've acquired, inevitably stuff gets left out. Stuff gets uh, not in there that maybe you, you wished were there. At least that's, that's the way it, it typically seems to me when I talk to documentarians. Is there any moment or bit of story that you wish was included in this that that uh, that viewers might not get to see unless they buy a DVD and get a special extended edition or extra deleted scenes type of thing. 
<laughs> I don't think we have deleted scenes, unfortunately. We used to get to do those all the time, and then you didn't have to kill as many of your babies, or at least you felt they lived in some sort of purgatory world where people could access them. I can't even remember the last time I did deleted scenes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, oh boy, I mean, the, the film was probably five hours at one point. So, um, you know, and I was probably pretty attached to most of those five hours and thought, you know, it was absolutely essential at the time that, the, that that be a part of the film. So one story that I love that comes to mind that didn't make our film um, for various reasons was, you know, these two women assassinated Kim Jong-nam in the Kuala Lumpur airport. But our investigation allowed us to prove where they had been in the lead up because they were claiming like not only did we uh, play this prank on Kim Jong-nam that led, him, led to his death, we actually had been on a reality show for months leading up to this being filmed, which is just inconceivable, the idea that there really was a show that just led up to this moment. Um, and we were able to prove through their, through their histories, through their, their social media histories, through their flight paths, that both women, um, you know, and the women were claiming they didn't know one another, which I believe. They literally met at Kim Jong-nam's face the moment they poisoned him. Um, both women, while they were being groomed uh, to be on the reality show, passed through Phnom Penh, Cambodia on the same day through the airport. So they were both there with their North Korean spy handlers at the same time in different parts of the city. And then we were able to prove that Kim Jong-nam was passing through Phnom Cambodia that same weekend. And so the likelihood that all three actors that played a part in this assassination would happen to be in the same international city at the same time, I think is way too much of a coincidence to not make the leap and wonder, this was, I think, three weeks before the assassination in Malaysia, whether there was a, going to be a first attempt in Cambodia for some reason, and for whatever reason was called off. You know, we have both of the women's um, text messages with their North Korean handlers where their handlers tell them, like, the prank show's off this weekend, we're not doing anything, just stay in your hotel room and we're flying you home. And so that to me was such like an espionage story of like, oh my God, like we can prove that this probably was supposed to happen in a completely different place. And just for running time purposes and flow purposes, we ended up, we ended up leaving it on the cutting room floor. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to, uh, in spoken word, give my deleted scene. Well. I'm really glad that you did because uh, that, that's the wonderful sort of like, yeah, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> abort called off last minute sort of uh, dry rehearsal that they could Exactly. Done. That's in like yeah. every spy movie that's ever that's ever come <laughs> out. Every Bond film has that aborted moment, you know. Yeah. That's right. Um, well, Ryan, I want to be really respectful of your time. And so I, I really just have two questions left. And what are you working on next? Uh, I, you have an incredibly diverse filmography, all different types of, uh, of documentaries. They're not all political uh, corruption, uh, intrigue sort of stories like this. You, you delve into a lot of subjects deeply. What, what's next for you? Where, where are you going next? I do have a diverse filmography, and it's something that I seek out because I love, I call it career ADD. I get to, I get to ping pong between so many different tones and subject matters. I'm, because of the documentary boom, I think myself and my colleagues were so lucky to be living during this, this age where uh, documentaries are seen as valuable and seen as real entertainment. So we're all working a lot. So I'm constantly, right now I'm working on five things, I think, at the same time. 
I don't even know if I'm allowed to say what any of them are because that's kind of how it works when you when you take on these jobs. But I will say they they are a very they are very diverse as well in the sense that I always get the itch. Like like I made the keepers for Netflix, which is highly investigative and very dark um, about murder and child sex abuse. And at the same time, I was making a film about Serena Williams, and I was on tour with Serena for a year. And so I would go between, you know, this dark hole in Baltimore where I was telling one story and then get to, you know, fly to Wimbledon and be around Serena when she won a Grand Slam. I did um, ask Dr. Ruth about the delightful 90-year-old sex therapist at the same time I was making Assassins. And I think I'll kind of always follow that pattern, and I'm doing it right now where I'm making one about sexual abuse and murder is at the center of the story. And then I'm making other ones about, you know... um, I wouldn't say they're light, because I don't think I ever really like anything that's too light. I mean, even Dr. Ruth's film is a Holocaust film, and, and Serena, God knows, has enough, uh, has enough uh, drama and challenges in her life. But I'm also doing a few that are a little more fun, like worlds that I'm interested in. I love tennis. I, I guess I was, the next jump would be saying I love sex, uh, <laughs> if we're extrapolating from Dr. Ruth. But there's other worlds that I don't, that we are so lucky as documentary filmmakers, because if we're interested in something that we're not an expert in, you know, something we didn't get to do as a career, we can try to make a film about somebody who has succeeded in that. So I'm doing one in the world of design. I haven't made a a really like an art film or design film yet. And so I'm working on a film about a, a very legendary designer that just allows me to be around a world that I'm fascinated with, but have never, you know, gotten a crash course in. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. Um, I, I guess really uh, the last thing I want to ask you is, of course, people can watch your movies, but do you exist on any of the social platforms? Can people tweet at you or Instagram you or any of those sorts of things? Is there a place for people to, to follow you if they want to get more of the Ryan White experience? Yeah, you're really challenging me on handles here. I, yeah, they could. <laughs> I, am on, I am on all of them. I think my Instagram handle, I know my Instagram handle is white815 because my birthday is August 15th. And I believe my Twitter handle is Ryan White Roman numeral four um, <laughs> because that was my IM, that's my IMDB number. You know, I have, a very, I have a very famous name as a child of the 80s where Ryan White was the, the boy who, from Indiana who died of AIDS in the 80s. So he's, he's always Ryan White number one. And so I ended up with the Roman numeral four at some point. And so I've become very attached to that Roman numeral and usually uh, attach it to my handles. So Twitter is Ryan White Roman numeral four. All right. Well, what we'll do, too, is in our show notes, we will put all the links there. So typical listeners of our show will know that they can go to our our show notes page and there'll be links to all the ways to find you. Thank you so much for being on Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. We we really enjoyed this conversation and uh, hope to have you back after your next movie. I would love that. Thank you for having me. All right, that was our interview with Ryan White. And up next is our interview with the cinematographer of Assassins, John Benham. So we are here today with cinematographer uh, John Benham. We always love having documentary cinematographers on. And uh, oh boy, do we have a documentary for you. It's called Assassins. And it is about two women on trial for the assassination of Kim Jong-nam. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Who uh, is Kim Jong-un's half-brother. And it is a uh, riveting spy tale. And I, I can't wait to talk. But, but, but thank you so much for coming on the show, John. 
Oh man, thanks Ben for having me. I really appreciate it. No, it's our pleasure. So first off, this documentary is insane, but also correct me if I'm wrong, as you were filming it, the story itself was unfolding. So when you jump into a story like that, what is it like? What are you expecting when you go into a story where, you know, we don't even, it, it, it's a court case, but it's also, it involves international espionage. Seems kind of even a little risky. What are you expecting when you jump into a movie like this? Uh, it's, it is strange. Yeah. And, and you don't really know what to expect. So you kind of have to be prepared for anything. I mean, just like any experience when you're making a documentary, you're kind of waiting to see what happens and then making adjustments and running around trying to find characters who are really hard to find. So you just want to travel light and nimble, you know, and be able to react at a moment's notice and also try to stay off the radar a little bit. You know, many of the characters who wanted to or didn't want to talk to us uh, they were hard to find. They were hard to, you know, it was just, it was just a complicated thing. So I kind of like that. <laughs> like for me, the, there's an excitement to the unknown, to the sort of risky uh, side of documentary filmmaking. And this mm -hmm. had all of that. Yeah. And so uh, it opens, this is not a spoiler, basically with surveillance footage showing the two defendants of the trial who will, which will comprise a great deal of the movie, obviously walking up to Kim Jong Nam in an airport and rubbing what turns out to be VX nerve agent on his face. And he is dead in like an hour. And there's uh, ample surveillance footage of, of everything going on. And there are so many twists and turns in the story, you know, because, it, uh, you know, when I started watching it, and I'm sure this is intentional on the part of the filmmakers, like, I'm like, well, obviously they did it. I don't, I don't know what else to say. And then uh, the story gets crazier and weirder and more complicated from that point and really is compelling, but also, you know, it's uh, disturbing because this is happening in our world right now today, you know, in a public airport, no less. When you went in to make the documentary, how much did you know regarding the potential guilt or innocence of the two women who were accused? Well, uh, the, there was an extensive article written by one of the producers, Doug Bach Clark. It's a very detailed article in, I think, GQ magazine. And so I was able to read that and kind of get some background on it. But it didn't look good for the women from the outset. I mean, obviously, this, is, this was a very public murder, assassination, essentially. And the course of the trial, it looked like they were going to be found guilty. I mean, there is no question about it that they were guilty. It's obvious. It's on the video. No doubt that they did it. But as for their guilt, like, you know, I, at first, you know, as the movie kind of posits the, that they have defense attorneys and I'm like, to defend against what? And then you kind of find out what. Right. And that's the power of how Tripod with Brian and Jessica and Kristen, uh, kind of how they unpack the story. You then have to kind of see how it happened and then make for yourself your own determination uh, as to whether you think that they're guilty or not. And, 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 and oftentimes me personally, I was like, oh, maybe CT is innocent and Doan is guilty. And then I, sometimes yeah. I would flip flop back and forth, you know, and I, I would change my mind constantly. But as we started to learn things and start talking to people, new revelations would come up and we would debate them amongst ourselves. And uh, it was really a fascinating journey. Yeah, that was my my kind of question as I was watching it, thinking about the, the process of making a film like this uh, w was if you didn't know that they were innocent, 
uh, or I should say, if there was any question in your mind about their guilt going in, does like if they were both just found guilty, the documentary would sort of be like, yep, they were guilty, <laughs> you know, like, but what you guys were making was kind of a little procedural in that you were kind of going through and, and in a very compelling and interesting way, educating us as to even the legal system of uh, Malaysia which I, I wouldn't have known anything about it. But like, what was the, I, I guess, what were your marching orders? What were, what were the things you were looking for or, and looking to cover as you were going through the film, as you were making it? Because you know, also just how long were you there? Yeah, uh, so there, there was, it was a big learning process. You're right. The, I never knew I would learn so much about the legal proceedings of Malaysia, but they're quite different from ours here mm-hmm. in the U.S., and so the case was presented by the prosecution. This is what they said the, the, the women did. And that at some point the judge would decide whether he wanted to hear the defense or not, you know, or whether mm-hmm. he would just say they were guilty. You know, um, the stakes were very high for them. Uh, guilt in this case means like immediate death penalty. They don't like sit around on death row over there. It's like a day or two or three days later, that's it. Like, and they hang them like it's the Wild West or something over there. Yeah, man. Not only that, but they hang them with like some kind of weird trebuchet type thing. And it like snaps your neck and it kills you instantly. So it's really freaky. And yeah, it's just a dark situation. And uh, but getting back to where you're coming from, I mean, th- that's what I love about working with Ryan is that he likes to know the minutia. He likes to mm-hmm. unpack all the details about the lives of these women and what it was like for them growing up in their respective countries. Doan being from Vietnam and CT originally being from Indonesia. Uh, where did they come from? What were their families like? Uh, what were their relatives like? What, what did their friends say about them? That's the beauty of documentary is that you have a chance to get at all those details and paint a portrait for the audience. So as not for us to say, oh, this is our judgment about these women. It's just presenting where they've come from, what type of people they are, what their families say about them, and what they were doing in Malaysia and why they were there. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're immigrant workers, essentially. So Ryan's able to grasp those details and tell a very intimate portrait of two women who were basically taken advantage of. So it takes some time. And, and, and you know, I would say over the course of the two years of making the film, I really, maybe it was, I'd say six or seven times a year, we would head over there for like two or three weeks at a time. And sometimes it was just days of waiting for someone to have the courage to talk to us. Or, um, you know, we had some things planned. Obviously, we were embedded with their respective legal teams. Mm-hmm. And um, so just following the course of the trial and the case through the legal teams was a very interesting process. And they were able to break down for us what stage we were at, you know, what does this ruling mean? And what does that ruling mean? And so just getting at those little minutia details, I mean, that's what I love. And I think certainly that's what Ryan does so well with these very complicated and, and very complex scenarios. You know, you, you got a very cinematic look for, for all the, you know, where you're with the lawyers or, you know, when, when you're on the streets or all the scenics, there's a lot of gorgeous scenics around the various cities that you were shooting in. How light did you travel? Like, what kind of camera were you using? What, what size crew did you work with? I would say on most occasions, there was only Ryan White, the director, Kristen, the field producer, and and myself. So it's very small crew. So we we travel very light. I mean, my style is very minimalist, and 
Uh, I like seeing people where they are, finding people in the places that they are. I like capturing that available light and or what the scenario for illumination is in the moment, you know, without changing things too much. I like accentuating that. So, you know, backpacks and, and real basic stuff so we could stay on the fly because there was lots of hopping in and out of taxis, chasing people around, trying to find locations <laughs> that are very difficult to find. You know, Kuala Lumpur is a incredibly beautiful city, but also it will swallow you up <laughs> if you don't know where you're going and where, and what you're doing. Um, yeah, it's very big. fast I mean, moving. It just looked humongous, like Blade Runner big uh, as I was watching it. That, exactly, exactly. The, the, uh, on occasion, the light felt that way. So we had two Canon C300 Mark II cameras with us the whole time. Mm -hmm. And we were using mostly one at a time, but on occasion we would set up two for interviews and things. But for me, the Canon C300 uh, ergonomics and, and the way it's built always works best, especially when I'm making a film like this, where I don't want to be, I want to be very low profile. I want to be off the radar. I don't want a camera that I, that I would sling onto my shoulder and cause a lot of attention to myself, mm. uh, both by people I want to stay away from or, and by just general public because it kind of suddenly a crowd builds, you know, because they want to see what you're doing and what you're filming. So the great thing about the C300 is that you can keep it in front of you, either on your lap or low profile. It's very lightweight. And for a camera of its size, it has the most bang for its buck in terms of cinema style camera. And I've used it for a lot of things. I shot the entire Keeper series with it. Oh, wow. Um, we're, which we're going to get to later for sure. And the film Charm City, I used it for that. Um, so I, I use, I just like it because it puts a lot of my subjects at ease. Just, but just the nature of putting your camera on your shoulder, it suddenly captures almost like a news style. Like yeah. people think, oh, it's the news and, and whatever this person is shooting is going to end up on the six o'clock news. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, that I, I feel like that's what people around me are perceiving. And so I could put the C300 in my lap. I could capture shots when I'm not supposed to be capturing shots. You know, <laughs> there's a lot that can be done with it. And I just love the style of, of that camera. I also really like looking through a viewfinder. And while you can have a camera like that, sort of rigged out with a proper viewfinder and still put it on your shoulder. The cool thing about the C300 style is that you can, it has a, a, a real small, very simple viewfinder. And yeah, I, I just, I, I love, I love working with the Canon stuff the most. So I guess like overall, not knowing what you're, what the, how the story is going to conclude. Like you're not making a documentary about a trial that already happened. You're making a documentary about a trial while it's happening, you know, and it, it brings to mind things like the Paradise Lost films or, uh, you know, the Joe Berlinger, Bruce Sinofsky kind of stuff. Did you know starting out that this is going to be about a two-year commitment to, to work on? And how do you go about like managing the rest of your life during those two years? Can you take other jobs? Like how does, how does what's the professional impact of, of working on a project for so long? I did not know it would take this long, but I welcome it. And the film benefits from it because you're able to really steep in. And I'm a very emotional filmmaker, so I get very involved with my subjects. And, I, and, and we, we definitely, I mean, me in particular, I can only speak for myself, but I think I, uh, the group shared that, is that we, really, we were really worried for these women. We, we mm -hmm. thought that, that the death penalty was kind of imminent. So I think Ryan has mentioned this before, but it was definitely prepared to, to release the film sooner than expected if it meant 
that it helped to potentially save their life or create a, an environment where there was a question mark put on the sudden guilty verdict or whatever, because we didn't know exactly what would happen, right? So, yeah. But yeah, so throughout the course of making the film, there were certain milestones related to the trial that we could kind of see in front of us, say two or three months down the line. But oftentimes with court cases and delays, and it's very hard to keep up with that. So it was just a, you know, a constant like keeping an eye on the calendar and finding out what I, when I had free time to take other jobs and when I didn't, because uh, I really wanted to see the end of this project and, and work on it until um, it came to fruition. Well, and especially, I mean, uh, well, I don't want to ruin the end of this movie, but, you know, if you're making something that could potentially save an innocent person's life or or bring innocence to light, you know, I, I, I get the, the impetus. What I'm consistently impressed with whenever we have uh, documentary cinematographers on here is how, you know, like if, if you're a cinematographer and you're shooting a narrative film, you know, obviously you're there to tell the story. You're the author of the image, but you're not really, uh, it's not that those cinematographers don't get personally involved, but because this is real life, I think it's almost impossible to do a documentary like this without getting personally invested in the outcome of it one way or the other. And so cinematographers of documentary, especially stuff, you know, where, where, you know, guilt or innocence are on the line or something critical is happening, or even it's just a story of, of someone in an extreme uh, circumstance, they take kind of a personal stake in it. Is that one of the things that kind of drew you to doing these kinds of documentaries? 100%. I mean, absolutely. The level of respect I have for someone to say, okay, film me at my most vulnerable moment. And so I always approach that with a delicacy and and a level of respect to match that type of permission that they've given me. And so it's inevitable, as you say, to get close to them, to allow your emotions into the moment. And frankly, I'm looking, I'm staring at them through my viewfinder for a ridiculous amount of time. And so I'm looking at, they know I'm looking at them uh, constantly. And so it's it's hard to hide uh, anything uh, mm. from the DP in a, in a documentary like this, because I can see it and, and I can feel what they're going through because they've given me permission to do that. It's such an interesting study into how spying and, and espionage works. Like, I don't think that I've ever seen like a spy movie that had such an insane storyline. Like if you made the movie about what happened, you know, you get studio notes like, would that work? I don't think that would work. And then it's like, nope, worked perfectly. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's the ultimate Patsy type situation for the intrigue and the the detail with which North Korea, you know, pulled this off is is quite fascinating. And obviously, um, I think Ryan and and the team did a great job of kind of assembling all of that mishmash because there's a lot, obviously, a lot of stock footage of North Korea. You know, it's not easy to get footage from within the country. I have a family. I probably wouldn't have gone into the country to, to capture some of that. I mean, look, I love taking risks and I love uh, living on the, the razor's edge when it comes to capturing uh, material. I'm very into social justice types of documentaries and I'm a very mission oriented type of filmmaker. But, uh, you know, I also have a family and I, I, I yeah. certainly uh, play that very delicately. Yeah. And apparently in North Korea, they've got a lot of VX nerve agents. So. <laughs> I would, I would oh, yeah. stay pretty far away. So let's go back and, and uh, talk about your origin story here yourself. Most of your body of work on the Internet Movie Database, anyway, is uh, nature documentary. But what was your uh, like? What was the gateway to you to cinematography? When when did you start? How did you start? What was your plan when you started? 
I kind of didn't even really think I, I mean, I, I didn't have a plan when I went to college to mm-hmm. go to film school. I was planning on uh, teaching history of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got very bored with that really quickly. And when I took a film elective course, the light bulb went off and I started, you know, then I changed my major and I extended my under, undergrad by an extra year to kind of graduate with a film degree. Oh, what, I what just became, oh yeah, Ta- Towson University. It's like a medium-sized university in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I remember my, as my script writing class, the, uh, my film professor told me on day one, he told the whole class that, welcome, you know, welcome to script writing 101, basically. If you want to work in film after you graduate from this school, you must immediately move to Los Angeles and New York. And that statement always stuck with me <laughs> and it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I had loved Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I feel lucky now that I was able to make a career by staying in Baltimore. But but Baltimore over- has a Baltimore actually has a decent industry though. Like there's it's not LA or New York size, but they're, you know, Baltimore, even in, I don't know if they still do, but in the day they used to have their own lab and, uh, you know, there were plenty of filmmakers who were permanently based in Baltimore. Yeah, no, you're right. And that, and that's the bridge, right? Is that this is the land of Barry Levinson and yeah. David Simon and John, Waters. And, and John and John Waters. Exactly. And, um, I mean, there, there is a, um, you know, so, so I was a camera shop uh, rat, you know, I mean, I basically grew up in a, in a camera shop and I, I always loved the time that I was there because I, I went through this, I was at Chesapeake camera in Baltimore for about five years working strictly with 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter film cameras. So I was learning Aerie and Aton and all that kind of stuff. And at the time, homicide life on the street was being made in mm. Baltimore, brilliant Verte, you know, television series. And we were renting cameras to them. So I was seeing all of this great handheld work and really getting into that sort of cinema verte style, I would, you know, um, and seeing how it was done technically. But during that time, I then, uh, when I, I, I was assisting a lot, you know, focus puller, you know this, I, I know that, I know that's your background. I looked you up a little bit. Not me. No, I'm, I was not, not a focus. Oh, is that Ilya? Okay. Ilya. Um, yeah, Ilya. Sorry. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to back away from that. I, you know, it's, it's a fine profession. I've just never done it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I was taking a lot of jobs and pulling focus for a lot of those people and um, different cinematographers in the DC and Baltimore area and just kind of learning the craft from the camera department side. But then I got a job at National Geographic and that started this weird path where I started traveling around the world to make nature documentaries. Uh, they are called blue chip documentaries, which essentially mean, nature documentaries that do not involve humans. There's no Mm. David Attenborough standing there kind of pointing at animals and telling you about the behavior. It's strictly animal behavior. But before I get to that, I'll just say, in general, I was a camera nerd. So growing up in in the camera house, the camera shop there in Baltimore, I was learning uh, basically during a time when the switch was happening from film to video, right? So there was this yeah. really strange period in the late 90s where suddenly people were starting to shoot more with video and digital video and, and the VX1000, the X2000, the PD150, all of those kinds of smaller video documentary style cameras started yeah. coming out. And it was a really interesting time because everybody was trying to make their video camera look like film. And the race was on to figure out how to make the best video camera that emulated a film style look so it was really cool time to be a camera nerd right and so during that process i left 
the camera shop and I started working at National Geographic Television. And I was convincing people that I could shoot and I was learning how to produce. And with those types of documentaries, if you can shoot and produce, you could put a lot more on screen uh, and many more days in the field, which, you know, making nature films is, is a difficult thing unless you have the time to spend in the field because it just doesn't happen. You don't, you, know, yeah, you can't it's, cast it's, animals to do things on your time or any kind of schedule. It always sounds like, like it requires a, a great deal of patience and ability to just roll and roll and roll. Yeah. And, and I would say as an inpatient young filmmaker, working on nature documentaries was the perfect elixir for learning how to sit and wait for something to happen patiently. Mm. <laughs> so it taught me a lot of lessons that you know, say 10 years later, once I scratched that itch and I, and I wanted to sort of branch out into people documentary filmmaking and things like that, it really taught me the value of patience and sitting with something um, and not trying to push it and just kind of letting it happen. So there's a, the lessons learned uh, from my time in nature filmmaking have really served me well during my time working with human characters and allowing myself just to be in that space and know that nothing's going to happen immediately. But when it does, I'll be ready. Oh, that's that's really interesting. That, that's a, a phenomenal insight into that, too. Now, when it, how did you know it was time to move out of the nature stuff and start making documentaries about people? Well, there was a time at Nat Geo in D.C. That's their, where their headquarters is. I started noticing a lot of really talented producers and filmmakers leaving. And I started to feel like, okay, there was some kind of a shift happening. And so I, I would talk to a lot of people around the building and, and ask about what's going on. And they were moving away from having all of their filmmakers in-house. I mean, it was a brilliant place, don't get me wrong. This was a place in the early 2000s that it was shared space between editors, producers, shooters, archivists. I mean, like everybody was there. It was like, it was like a miniature production house. It was brilliant time to be there. Uh, but clearly they were starting to branch out and starting to hire third party players to deliver their films. And so I just started seeing that tide turning and I realized, okay, well, if I could start branching out and figuring out ways to, to make my own way, I could then sort of diversify how long and how complicated was it to start getting like how long until you got your first your first gig that uh, wasn't nature related in terms of like verte cinema and following humans around it, it 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 i would say it took like 3 or 4 years to really get comfortable with it and that's right about the time that Ryan and Jessica came to Baltimore to start development and research on making the keeper series Yes, which I mean, the keepers was kind of a, I'd say it was kind of a, a water cooler show uh, when it came out. It was it was something that everybody was was talking about. It, it's a pretty remarkable thing, but it's also a series, so it's a lot longer form than than just one movie. Uh, how did you go about? Well, well, actually, just tell me how you how you fell into their orbit, and then like you know the process of developing the look and style of that of that series. Yeah, I had a friend who, uh, for uh, the first week that they came to Baltimore to kind of just get some initial B-roll and start auditioning, not auditioning, but just, just you know, it's a very sensitive subject. And a lot of the survivors felt very anxious about being on camera. So mm -hmm. it was a very delicate process to kind of just build up to them, being comfortable with the lens, looking at them and hearing these awful truths, but important truths. 
a friend of mine had rented my uh, camera to help them in that first week. And then he got a project out, out of the country for the rest of the year and needed to sort of make a recommendation to them. And so he just said, hey, the, the, the guy I rent this camera from is really great film like as well. You should hire him. So oh, wow. I basically just got thrown in and backed into the project. I had no idea what I would learn and what I would find out until that first day that I met with Ryan and Jess at a Dunkin' Donuts. That was the first day we did a gigantic and probably the most horrific and exhausting interview of my career up until this point as well. Uh, mm -hmm. It was where we met Jean and did that first interview with her. And I just like, that was a, that was a, a really awful traumatic day for everybody, I think, but important, you know, and, and the fact that she was ready to talk about what happened to her and to find justice for herself. I mean, talk about the beginning of a mission that, that was day one of, of, of a job for me uh, in three days of, film and a series that ultimately became like a mission you know it, it went from being a job to a mission on day one what would you say I, I always think this is an interesting thing because you know obviously everybody has a bias when they're if you're making a film if you're making a documentary film you have a bias but I always wonder what where is the razor's edge in your opinion and maybe it's specifically your bias or your inclination but where's the the difference between documentary filmmaking and journalism how is it like journalism? How is it not like journalism? And where do you sit in, in that world? I have been obsessed with that razor's edge. And I think about this all the time, especially when you see the amount of optioning that happens with a lot of these articles that journalists write and then filmmakers mm -hmm. end up making the film about. You know what I mean? There's this, yeah. there's like a dance. Uh, there's like a, a definitely a relationship there as well between a journalist and a filmmaker when oftentimes it's a subject that someone's written about extensively. They become involved as perhaps a producer or an advisor or someone who makes the introductions to the characters so that you can then get them on camera and you can turn that story into a documentary. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes the filmmakers play the role of journalists. And in many yeah. ways, as I was saying, you steep yourself in the subject. You're spending a lot of time there. You're, you're As a documentary filmmaker, you essentially can become by embedding yourself in the subject and by creating those relationships, you can become this sort of pseudo-journalist pseudo and you're collecting material. And if you're real smart, you're keeping that organized, you're writing outlines, you're trying to understand how everybody is related to one another. I don't really know that I know where the edge is of the difference between those two worlds. It seems to me that they're starting to merge in many ways, uh, especially when you go from, you know, the way we have in the 21st century, you go from, it's almost like a video journalism uh, carries the day now, even on social media, you know, most stories have a video component embedded into the article. When you click on the article, there's usually like a, even if it's a short two to five minute video, there's some kind of component that goes with the actual article that's, that's been written. Well, it's it's weird because that also even goes back to Canon in a weird way, because I remember when the Canon 5D Mark II came out, that was the first DSLR that shot video. And uh, Canon, I guess someone at 
AP or Reuters or somebody had talked to the people at Canon and said, you know, it'd be great if instead of giving pictures, we could also have video for the internet. And then they enabled that capability in, in, in that camera and then all future cameras. And then it revolutionized filmmaking in a weird way. But to me, it's interesting because if I'm reading an article, say on the AP or whatever, and there's video, it's usually either it's not commented upon or it's not bringing me to any kind of conclusion. I think about this a lot too, because we, you know, we do talk to numerous documentarians on here and we, you know, we, we did have Frederick Wiseman on and I've interviewed Errol Morris for backstage a million years ago. And to me, it's like, there is something different though about a documentary film. I mean, obviously there are polemicists like Michael Moore. I don't know if I would call what he does journalist, journalistic even it's, it's giving information, but it's, it's obviously it's, it's gonzo journalism from his point of view. And then, you know, you have something like the keepers, you know, or assassins, which does feel very informational, but it's not that journalism isn't supposed to be compelling or entertaining, but there is something entertaining there. There's a structure or a style that kind of conforms with the way you would structure a movie or structure a TV show with teases and cliffhangers and stuff that the filmmakers have to find in that material that I always wonder if that's what distinguishes it. But I don't know. I'm, I'm more interested in your thoughts than my thoughts because they're rattling. Around well, no, I, I think you're right on there. And I, I mean, that's, that's what I think makes great uh, Ryan such great, director is that he is definitely more interested in allowing the audience to kind of figure things out for themselves than he is to kind of place judgment and or make a a sweeping generalization about a subject matter and i think that that's probably why people gravitate towards things like the keepers or it becomes something that they can discuss i mean you said it it was a water cooler type of series and i think it was because it allowed for that space for people to discuss it And to kind of have conversations about it. And therefore it becomes a bit more evergreen. And also the other thing that you're able to do is to allow your subjects to tell the story in in so far as how the film rolls out. It feels like it's less about the voice of the director than it does about the voice of the women and Charles telling their, their difficult stories and speaking their truths. It also avoids that pitfall, which happens a lot where the filmmaker sort of clearly injects their um, personal feelings about uh, yeah. the subject into the film. And so Ryan's able to avoid that because his goal is to allow them to tell the story. And I feel like that is really important today, especially as we talk about and have these uh, discussions culturally about representation and who is making a film about who. So I only really have one more question and you may not be able to answer it because it's about a project that you have in, in progress, but you're directing it or you're co-directing it. And, uh, it's called rocket to Venus and just reading the, the synopsis on IMDb. Uh, it looks extremely intriguing. Are you able to talk about it at all? Oh yeah, definitely. I I'm, I'm totally able to talk about it. Um, Bob Ferrier and, and Daffy Glover and a couple friends of mine are making this film. I've been obsessed with this forever since the guys, re- since Buck and Jeff opened the restaurant, they just happen to be friends of mine from a little town called Crofton, mm-hmm. uh, Crofton, Maryland. And they started this restaurant just as an homage to the story. And so on the back of the menu, when you flip it over, it tells a little brief synopsis of what the story's about. And it's essentially three friends in Baltimore, a little town called Hamden, who got together, you know, 30 or 40 years before Sputnik with their own space mission, uh, built a rocket, built a spaceship, 
in their garage and with plans, uh, very serious plans, very thought out plans mm. uh, about uh, getting themselves to Venus. <laughs> and I didn't, that would have been a very, didn't start a, making... very, a very toasty conclusion to their tale. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you still have guys, uh, flat earther folks. Uh, oh yeah, there's that documentary called Rock, Rocket Man about that guy who was trying, trying to... Exactly, yeah. exactly. You still have people, what is it, uh, almost 100, year late, 100 years later, trying the same thing. So it was, they were very ahead of their time. And I just was fascinated as to what motivated these folks and what happened to them and also what happened to the spaceship. Um, I wanted like, you know, my goal, my, my thought was like, how do we find the spaceship? You know, it just, it sort of disappeared. So we were trying to pick up the story and find out where these guys went uh, and, and where the spaceship went and try to return it to its rightful home in Baltimore and kind of put it on display outside of the restaurant. I thought that would be the ultimate ender to the homage that the guys put on by starting the restaurant and family over the years have kind of trickled into the restaurant once they found out about it and been like, Oh, wow, you, you made a, a, a restaurant in the name of my great uncle, you know, Whoa. Uh, it's, it's, it's really cool. So that's kind of how it started is that Buck and Jeff would tell me that, Hey, you know, um, these family members are starting to trickle in and I say, Oh, and so I, I would kind of backtrack and try to find them and get interviews with them. But it always, it was always one of those stories. I thought I'm going to make a film about this and it took some time to do it. And it took some time for me to find the friends and colleagues who were interested in helping me do it. And once we started on the, on the path, um, it's taking quite some time and, you know, COVID has kind of destroyed our ability to, to connect with some of those uh, older characters that still know about the story. Um, mm. But we're not giving up and we're very close and we feel like we're hot on the trail of not only the, the rocket itself, uh, but the captain of that ship, uh, Robert Condit, who is really the mystery man uh, behind the story and how this all happened. And so I'll definitely keep you in the loop on what's going oh, on with that. And, please um, do. That sounds and, fascinating. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you so, so much for coming on and thank you for making Assassins or for shooting Assassins. It's really compelling and I hope that our our listeners check it out. It's a really compelling, intriguing, uh, often disturbing documentary uh, that I think really merits uh, merits people checking it out and, uh, and and then being disturbed like I was. Well, Ben, I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for having me on the Cinematography Podcast. It's a, a really an honor. Thank you. Oh, oh no. Honor for us. So that was cinematographer John Benham. Of course, uh, John did the interview with Ben. Uh, I had to fill in for Ryan White because uh, Ben's out. But uh, and just a reminder, if you're just joining us, if for some reason you skipped over all of the podcast up until this point, uh, co-hosting guest co-host with me today is Bill Totolo. Do you ever go by William Totolo? Is that uh, is that something you, you do or is it always Bill? No, William is a name that has always not sat well with me. Um, Bill, I love the name Bill, and then close friends can call me Billy. Believe it oh, or not. Okay, all right. Well, you're, well, you're, you're in that category, Ilya. Well, well, thank you, Billy. I've, I've never called you that before, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, uh, this is the part of the show that that you know our, our famous part of the show that we call. And now, short ends. And short ends is really, uh, you know, sort of a, a pet obsession, something that, uh, you know, might be might be current and going on. Uh, I've got one. Uh, do you have got something that, you know, maybe this week you've really been sort of obsessing over you find fascinating? Yeah, you know what I thought was really cool this week? 
is, you know, we're all aware of the big trade shows we're missing and the big events and the big film festivals. And I think a lot of people who are in this industry are also musicians, and I think they'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, so I was not able to attend the NAMM show this year, which is... Yeah, what's that? What's the NAMM it's, show? It's the industry equivalent of going to Sundance. It's 90,000 people attend the Anaheim Convention Center from around the world. And it's mostly for merchants, but regular folk like me get into. And we get to see the gear hands-on. We get to meet the artists that are endorsed by the... the uh, Manufacturers, but wait and, a second. But what, what is it? What what is what does NAM stand for, and what, and what goes? What is the uh, the show about? It is the acronym is N A M M for North American Music Merchants, hmm. and this is when companies like Gibson are going to, going to introduce all their new product: Fender, Ibanez, Paul Reed Smith, on and on, drums, Roland, Yamaha, you name it. So Yamaha will literally have like uh, Stevie Wonder. Uh, Stevie Wonder. Oh my God! Stevie Wonder performed at uh, at Nam. Yeah. So. Oh my uh, God. Yeah, <laughs> Yamaha had him introducing new product. You get Stevie Wonder, and you get people like members of Yes playing with Ingve Malmsteen, playing with well, there'll be some weird Van Halen reunion members of remaining members of Van Halen. So this year, just just like Sundance, which I also thought was cool, is they did a digital version. Mm. where you got to register and attend all the workshops, seminars, interviews, performances, and it was very well done and very impressive. Did you get to see Stevie Wonder virtually like that too? I didn't see Stevie Wonder. I was watching a very uh, long extended Dave Navarro interview where he was going into the early influences of Jane's Addiction, how they really never wanted to put a hook in any of their songs or a chorus. They never wanted to be a radio airplay type of band. Uh, and there's a lot of there's literally hundreds of others to go through. Uh, are any of them archived? Is it possible for you or is it only happening live and in the moment? Do you get a chance to? to... Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. It's all it lives online. So you just take it in as you want. And I believe that's the same way uh, Sundance is working. I've I have reserved uh, a spot for uh, attending Sundance, but I haven't streamed it yet. I haven't gone through it because there's a lot in there. I wanted to watch. I think Rita Moreno has a documentary out this year. She was being interviewed. Then there was a producer's panel, as you would expect. And so you and I have had the pleasure of being there together, so I could actually imagine exactly how this is going down. A couple weeks ago on the show, uh, I talked about how CES was uh, making the virtual transition to a not-in-person show for 2020. But I kind of wonder if many more events uh, will automatically have now this online component. Or maybe they become mostly online and maybe it's only a, a very, very small event for, you know, the the, the very uh, expensive sort of uh, wealthy uh, exclusive sort of thing. Like, you know, Sundance now is 11 people that goes to it and then everyone else is watching it online or, or something like that. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to say where this is going, but uh, I think it's probably a good thing for more people who want to access really popular events. I think the big one we'll have to watch is going to be Comic-Con. I think Comic-Con is one of these huge shows. And uh, if that can all exist virtually, then I don't think there's any show that, that can't do it. I agree 100% because it gets expensive to attend all these. I would love to see Con, Venice, Telluride, you know, all of these all, you know, it'd be fun to just dip into a few little workshops on each one. Uh, I, I agree 100%. Uh, all right. So uh, my short end this week is actually something brand new that uh, you're getting a little e- exclusive here, here, Bill. I don't think it's been anywhere uh, else yet, but uh, I got this thing. Actually, I'll move out of the way. You might be able to see it. 
It's on the wall uh, right up there. It's got these really powerful, wait, there it is, very powerful magnets. It kind of looks like a bowling pin on your wall. <laughs> oh yeah, I see exactly what that is. I know what that is. You recognize, well, you recognize part of this. What you see here is the Aperture B7C battery powered light bulb. And it's a really impressive bit of tech. It's a really high quality light bulb, but what it is, is sitting inside of this thing, which is called the Betty Eddy. And the Betty Eddy is essentially a baby pin and a light socket. So you can now take your aperture bulbs like this or any other battery powered light bulb and put it in a C-stand, put it in a, any gobo head, put it in anything because you now have a baby pin connection. And what you're seeing here, we'll have to put some links online uh, to this so people can check it out. But uh, it looks a little bit different because we've got this uh, super high powered magnet in the bottom. And this magnet here is covered in rubber and it's got eight super powerful rare earth magnets and uh, on my wall there there's probably like some sort of metal stud and uh, I'm able to stick this straight through the drywall and have it stick to the metal stud but uh, this is a really super handy light uh, holder that people are going to be able to use uh, next to their computers if they just want to stand something up or on set the, the Betty Eddy has a baby pin on the bottom here and there's a couple of quarter 20s which you can hang a safety chain or it can uh, move your uh, your magnet to a different spot but really cool really cheap under 20 bucks for this and uh, it's going to be exclusively available at hot rod cameras uh, starting next week so anyway I, i'm i'm really obsessed with it i've kind of been carrying it around as like a torch it almost looks like i'm uh, the statue of liberty or something if i was to hold it aloft over my head and of course um perfect eye light, perfect, uh, you know, sort of like little soft fill that you could just kind of Hollywood and, and, and bring in there. And then of course, if you need to hang it up somewhere, you've got the, uh, the baby pin or the magnet or any other way that you might want to rig this. So. That stuff is so handy on, it's so practical. It gets used all the time. I know Quasar's got magnetic lights. Aladdin used to have them. That stuff is really useful on set. Uh, I've done it all the time and we all have, so should be in everybody's kit. Um, the price is right. So, uh, not that I'm pimping your company, but uh, that's what we call a home run, my friend. Uh, I, I sure hope so. I think that people are going to like it. I know that uh, Betty is a brand new company, uh, been totally under the radar, and they've got some cool grip and lighting little bit, bits and pieces like this. So I think that uh, we'll be seeing a lot more from them in the future. I love it. I love it. Um, that'll be really interesting. I could already, I already imagine many practical uses for that. Just putting pole cats across the ceiling and creating my soft ambient glow from above. Um, it'll be really interesting to do that uh, off-camera kind of edge light um, and just a billion other applications, a billion. Yeah, and uh, the, like I was saying before, this magnetic base is removable and it's super powerful. So if you did want to use it with something else, if it's got a quarter 20, you're good to go. All right, so Bill, I think that, thank you so much for, for, for joining us like this this way. This, this basically does it. We have to thank a few people. But first off, I want to ask you, where can people find you online if they want to look you up and follow you? Are you a, a LinkedIn or a Twitterer? Or how, how, do, you, do you have a reel somewhere? What, how, how do people find you? Yeah, I guess yeah, I'm like every other cameraman. I'm on the gram. Uh, mm -hmm. Just my first initial last name, B. Totolo. Um, or you could just go to BillTotolo.com and that'll direct you to everything. Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. And uh, let's thank some people. Uh, let's thank uh, Kay Zalatracci. I think you may have uh, crossed paths with Kay's in, in, in the past. Every bit of music that you may have heard in this episode was composed by Kay's. Uh, Kay's also famously doesn't listen to the podcast, so I don't think he's hearing the sound of my voice right now. Shame on you, Kays. I, I hope someday you, you do listen to at least one of these episodes. Uh, let's thank our editor. 
Ben Katz. Ben Katz, uh, making uh, Bill Totolo and I not sound uh, completely uh, terrible. Thank, Thank you, you ben, ben Katz, for, for yeah, uh, I know you, you've got your work cut out with me. And, uh, <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> and we got to thank uh, our intrepid producer, Alana Cody. Alana Cody, kicking all the ass and making sure that we, uh, actually, particularly me, have all kinds of interviews scheduled, I think one every day this week, uh, for all the upcoming you know future shows of the Cinematography Podcast. I'm going to be, be quite busy, and there's a whole lot more coming your way. So you can say goodbye, Bill. Uh, until next week, thank you for listening to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having me, Ilya, and let's not forget to thank Charles Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Pepper, always, always deserving of a thank you. Uh, thank you, Charles. Seriously, Where thank you. I appreciate it. You made it very easy. And uh, Ben, get well. Love you, buddy. Thanks for having me. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.